God fulfills His promises and accomplishes His purposes even through foolish people. All relationships depend on a value exchange. Each side must bring something the other side values. Welcome to the MANA Bible Lessons Podcast. MANA is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us, and now, here's Brad Hannock. If you'd be so kind, fellow students, open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. We're looking at uh, kings of Israel. Uh, Lord willing, for the next several months, we'll be going through this biographical sketch and historical sketch of the nation. Today is going to be extraordinarily practical in terms of the applications we can have. So near the end of his life, Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 2.18, he says, Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the one who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or an idiot. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. You know, you read that and you're going, maybe Solomon had an intimation that his children were less than wise. You know, you never know. So he died, King Solomon died about age 60, and like the rest of us, he left it all, right? He had made clear that the crown prince, Rehoboam, who was age 41 at the time, would inherit the throne upon his death. By the way, the name Rehoboam means increase of the nation. So obviously he had great hope for him. His mother's name, Rehoboam's mother's name was Naamah. She was an Ammonitess from this nation of Ammon. She was married to Solomon uh, when she was still a teenager. Rehoboam, remember, was born. Uh, Solomon died around 60, so if Rehoboam's 41, he was born when Solomon was like 19. So obviously they believed in early marriages. Clearly he didn't live that long, so you had to get with the program here. So if you would turn to 1 Kings 12, verse 1, we're going to pick up the narrative. Solomon's now died, and Rehoboam is the crown prince. Verse 1, then Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Now when Rehoboam, the son of Nebat, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, he was living in Egypt, for he was yet in Egypt, where he had fled from the presence of King Solomon. Then they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, quote, Your father made our yoke hard. Now therefore, lighten the hard service of your father in his heavy yoke, which he put on you, and we will serve you. He said to them, Depart for three days, then return to me. So the people departed. So the picture is they're going to do a coronation and an inauguration, and they come and they bring a request. So here's the principle. Take time to think, plan, and pray before making important decisions. Take time, make time to think, plan, and pray before making important decisions. Rehoboam had said, come back to me in three days. And I want to point out to you where Shechem is. If you look at the map, you'll see Jerusalem and Jericho below the line in Judah, and then above the line, above the line of division between the two nations, which are going to have a separation here in a couple of verses, you'll see Bethel and Shechem. Today, that's modern-day Nablus, very important city in Israel, Shechem was. It was located about 40 miles north of Jerusalem. It was very centrally located. It was between the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim, and they were leading influential tribes of the Northern Ten Tribe Coalition. Uh, Abraham and Jacob had spent significant time in Shechem, and Joseph uh, was actually buried in Shechem. Uh, Joshua, when he crossed the Jordan River, had confirmed the covenant, God's covenant with the nation of Israel at Shechem. So this location was strategic, very, very crucial, and an excellent choice for a coronation. Now remember historically that a few years before this, Solomon, before he died, had found out that Jeroboam was God's choice to lead the ten northern tribes. 
And God had sent the prophet Ahijah to inform Jeroboam of that fact. Now, when Solomon found that out, he tried to abrogate God's will, doesn't work too well, and he tried to kill Jeroboam. So Jeroboam had fled to Egypt, and that's where he was until Solomon died. Now, it's interesting, all of Israel, all 12 tribes have come for this coronation, and Jeroboam uh, has come back uh, from Egypt uh, for that particular purpose. Rehoboam has got to know that God's choice for the northern 10 tribe leader is Jeroboam. Solomon, his dad, had tried to kill him, and it's, you have to assume that Solomon told Rehoboam, his son, that guy, watch out for, because God's prophesied that he's going to be the leader of the 10 northern tribes. So you know that he has to know that. They don't know what Jeroboam's got planned, but Rehoboam has got to be aware that there's a threat here. So they come to the northern city of Shechem to, a, to do the coronation inauguration. Now, Solomon had already chosen Rehoboam to be the king, but the nation of Israel still needed to affirm that choice and enter into a covenant with God and the king. Israel had a tradition, an excellent one, beginning with Saul. When a new king was coronated, the nation as a whole came together to affirm God's choice and enter into a covenant between three parties, the nation, the king, and God. And all three of the participants, the parties in this, reaffirmed the covenant and the commitment to obey God. And that happened with Saul and David and Solomon beforehand. So that was a very, very good tradition. Now the ten tribes from the north, uh, they come and they have a list of grievances and they wanted Rehoboam to address some changes before they would approve him as king. They said, look, your father imposed extraordinarily heavy taxation on us. He also imposed forced labor, which is a very fancy way of saying slave labor gangs. That's what they did to do all his building projects and his empire building at that point. So Solomon, while he was a wise man, had a very, very expensive empire, and he taxed the people heavily. And he forced them to work, in some cases, for free, building his projects. So they're saying, we want a reduction in taxation if we're going to support you as king. Now, it seems as though Rehoboam was not expecting any recommendations or be confronted with those changes that they wanted to make. So he was wise, in this particular case, to say, give me three days to think about this. Give me three days to kind of think what a prudent course of action would be. Now, time helps, but it really only helps if you use the time wisely. Verse 6 tells us what Rehoboam did. King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, quote, How do you counsel me to answer this people? Good question. They spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to this people today and will serve them and grant them their petition and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. Here's the principle. Godly leaders are not celebrities. They are servants who work for the benefit of others. Godly leaders are not celebrities. They are servants who work for the benefits of others. So Rehoboam was wise to seek counsel. He must, must have read or might have read his father's writing in Proverbs eleven fourteen, Where there is no guidance, where there is no counsel, the people fall, no vision, but in abundance of counselors, there is victory. So the principle is very simple. If you don't know, ask. Have, are you not amazed at the people who refuse to ask? It is utterly amazing. You keep getting in train wreck after train wreck, and you say, you could ask for help. I don't know. That seems to be impossible for some people to say. I don't know. Can you give me some counsel? Now, most importantly, if you're going to ask, ask God for help. Since, by the way, there's no answer he does not know, Solomon had written key, key verses. Many people have this as a life verse, rightly so. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. 
So, you know, surrender your thoughts, surrender your plans, surrender your ideas to God, ask him to guide you, and it says, what will he do? He'll lead you in a straight path as opposed to he'll lead you in a crooked path. That's not God. God is a God of moral uprightness. Interesting, fascinating, and discouraging, there is not one record of Rehoboam praying and asking for God's advice. You would think, just saying, that if you are taking over the kingdom of your father, it would be wise to ask for help, right? Just ask for wisdom. Especially since God had said, the 10 northern tribes, I'm going to tear away from you. You would think, okay, how am I supposed to respond to this, Lord? Grant me wisdom so that if that's supposed to happen, I would handle it well. Solomon, at least at the beginning of his reign, remember when he had God said, what do you want me to do for you? He said, give me wisdom so that I would righteously govern this people. By the way, you and I are not kings and queens, but we have responsibilities. You have adult children. Yes? You have nieces and nephews. Yes, you have brothers and sisters and cousins and grandchildren. Have you thought about praying on a regular basis for wisdom on how to be a parent, an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent, etc., etc., so that you would represent God well to the people that are watching your life? Not to pray for wisdom to do that is arrogant. It's also plain stupid. Just saying, right? Okay, I'll quit meddling. You know that's not true. I'm going to keep meddling. The Lord meddles with me, so then I just pass on what he says to you. <laughs> I'm just the water boy, just carrying the water. I want you to notice the words that Rehoboam uses when he asks for counsel. He calls his fellow Israelites this people. This people. This people are his fellow citizens. They're sons and daughters of Abraham, just like he is. Yahweh is their God as well. Remember, though, Rehoboam has lived 41 years in La La Land. He has been in the palace. He has been insulated from any sort of hardship. He has no connection with the people of Israel. He sees himself seated above them and separated from this people. Now, in contrast, his grandfather David loved the people, right? I mean, he loved them like a shepherd loves his sheep. How many times did David put his life on the line going out in front of the troops to fight battles for the benefit of Israel over and over and over again? In contrast, Solomon simply used the people for his own selfish pleasure. Tax them and work them, right? Rehoboam doesn't even call them our people, my people. He says, this people. I mean, he despised them. He treated them lightly. So the elders who served with Solomon are going to give him some very good advice. They're probably in their 60s and 70s, so you know they've got to be brilliant, right? They had vast experience, several decades. Even more importantly, they had very little to gain personally from their advice. They didn't have a conflict of interest. Their advice wasn't corrupted with self-serving motives. They would be objective. And they had seen the effects of very heavy taxation and forced labor on the nation. They saw what it did. They knew the mood of the people, and they advised Rehoboam to lighten the load. Reduce the size of government. Imagine that. Find ways to serve and help your fellow citizens, and they will remain loyal to you. Isn't it just remarkable? Right? Now, these elders knew a very principled truth. All leaders ultimately govern only by the consent of the governed, right? No one can successfully rule long-term unless they use their power to serve and benefit the coalition that keeps them in power. Now, to serve means to create value for. To serve means to work for the benefit of someone else, another. The ultimate person who demonstrates servanthood for us is Jesus. Remember, he took the he exemplified this when he took the lowest household slave position and did what? Wash the disciples' feet. Only the lowest slaves would do that. None of the disciples would do it, but Jesus modeled that. Another instance when he illustrated this, there was, comes a point when he was discussing how he was going to die, and immediately following that, 
Salome, who's the mother of James and John, she comes up and she says, I've got a request for you. And he says, what do you want me to do? And she says, I want my sons, when you come back in your kingdom and sit on your glorious throne, I want James and John to sit on your right and left. Right? And it says that the other ten became furious. Now, they were furious because they didn't think about it themselves. I mean, they got beat to the punch, right? James and John got asked for an event. And Jesus says to them in Matthew 20, 25, quote, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. See, as God's people today, you and I are called not to be sovereigns, but to be servants. We are to work for the benefit of and create value for others. Now, the ultimate act of serving, of course, to work for the benefit of others took place when Jesus Christ died in our place, right? He died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sins so that we can live forever in heaven with God. That is the ultimate act of service, and we are called to do what? Be like him. And you go, well, I'm not going to lay down my life for the salvation of others. I'm not Jesus Christ. That's correct. But we are called to lay down our time, our lives is our time, one day at a time, and create value and serve God's people and people who need to know Jesus for their benefit, for their eternal benefit. So Jesus laid out the model for us. Verse 8, how did Rehoboam respond to this wise counsel from the elders? But he forsook, rejected the counsel of the elders which they had given him and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. And so he said to them, what counsel do you give that we may answer this people who have spoken to me saying, lighten the yoke which your father put on us? The young men who grew up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you shall say to this people who spoke to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, now you make it lighter for us, but you shall speak to them. Listen to this. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Here's the principle. Asking for advice is wise if you ask wise people. Asking for advice is wise if you ask wise people. Here's another corollary. You are a fool if you expect a fool to give you wise counsel. Talking to a fool is going to give you what? Foolish counsel. That's because they're foolish people. Rehoboam had already made up his mind to reject the counsel of the elders before he even went and talked to the young people. He'd already rejected it, and that's why he went and talked to his own peer group. Now, his father had written in Proverbs 18.13, He who gives an answer before he hears the matter, it is folly and shame to him. Right? Rehoboam didn't want to hear what his father's counselors advised. Um, he was now just shopping around to find someone who would agree with him and give him cover to do what he wanted to do. He didn't have to look very hard. His peers, his buddies, who had grown up with him in the palace, had ambitions now that he was king because they were his peer group, right? This was their opportunity for major career advancement. Now, like him, they had been insulated from hardships, like him, they were utterly clueless about the realities of what the people of Israel were actually experiencing because they were all palace rats, like gym rats, right? They had lived in that world, and so they were not connected with what was really going on on the ground. So they wanted Rehoboam to establish his authority as the no king, you know. Show them who's boss right now. Rehoboam was 41 years old at the time, chronologically, but in many ways he was still an adolescent. I mean, he was behaving like a teenager, right? It's interesting, at the end of his life, at 58 years old, he reigned 17 years, he had 18 wives, 60 concubines, 28 sons, and 60 daughters. You wonder when he had time to govern the nation. 
you know, who's watching the store, right? Now, his peer group, in essence, says, here's what you do. You threaten and you intimidate the people of Israel. Tell them that the hardships they experienced under their father, Solomon, are nothing compared to the hardships you're going to be imposed on by me. My, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist says, I'm bigger and badder and meaner and stronger than my father was, right? The yoke of taxation and slavery that my father put on you is going to be nothing compared to what I'm going to do to you. Apparently, Solomon kept the people in line with whips, which is interesting that you would actually use corporal punishment or beating to keep the people in line when you were a fellow Israelite with them. That was not God's plan. A scorpion, by the way, was a whip where the leather ends of the whip had bone shards and metal. So when you whipped, got whipped with it, it would tear your flesh. That's what Jesus got scourged with at, before the cross. It was a, a, a Roman whip that had bone pieces and metal shards in it that would actually rip the flesh. Rabboam says, my father whipped you with whips. I'm going to whip you with scorpions, which meant I'm going to impose even more torture on you. So he, he really showed that he disdained them. He promised to inflict pain on them. Clearly, he was not aware that the fault lines between northern Israel and Judah were already slipping. I mean, we were headed for an earthquake, and he's trying to make this thing happen. Just to give you an example, back in the day when Solomon took over as king, he organized Israel into 12 districts, 12 administrative districts, one for each month of the year. And each district was responsible for 30 days to bring all the stores that the kingdom needed for that month. All the food. I mean, Solomon had a big entertainer, you know, I mean, he had lots of stuff. So each district had to bring all the food stuffs for 12 months. It was a big, big burden for each of these 12 districts. However, the tribe of Judah was exempt from that requirement because Solomon was from the tribe of Judah. Do you think that caused a little resentment? A little charge of favoritism, you know, among the family? The ten northern tribes were fed up, verse 12. Then Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, as the king had directed, saying, quote, Return to me on the third day. The king answered the people harshly, for he forsook the counsel of the elders which they had given him, and he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, quote, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of events from the Lord that he might establish his word, which the Lord had spoke through Abijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Here's the principle. God fulfills his promises and accomplishes his purposes even through foolish people. I was going to call him something else, but let's just leave it at that. God fulfills his promises and accomplishes purposes even through foolish people. Frank Borman once wrote, quote, We make our decisions, and then our decisions turn around and make us. Decisions we make earlier in life about education, marriage, children, career, money, location, friends, do they not shape our lives throughout the years and decades? The most consequential decision of all is, who is the God you will serve? Who is the God you will commit your life to following? That determines what? Our eternal destiny. That is the most profound of all decisions we make that shape us for all eternity. Now, Rehoboam made a series of choices. Not only changed his life, changed the entire course of the life of the nation. Verse 16. When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king saying, quote, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now look after your own house, David. So Israel departed to their tents. But as for the sons of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. 
Here is one of the most profound principles I can tell you about life. Quote, all relationships depend on a value exchange. Each side must bring something the other side values. All relationships depend on a value exchange. Each side must bring something the other side values. For any relationship to continue of any kind, both parties must bring something to the table that the other party wants. Correct? It's the old give and take. When one party in a relationship habitually takes and takes and takes and takes, and the other person gives and gives and gives and gives, what can you conclude about that relationship? It's probably not going to last very long, right? There's no value in continuing it. This value exchange is true of friendships. Both friends have to bring something to the table. Marriages. I used to be in a singles group, and a very wise man, older than me, used to talk to these young people and say, and what makes you such a good catch? I mean, other than that, you're a legend in your own mind. Why would someone be interested in committing their life to you? Well, I'm special. Okay, well, they think they're special too. So what do you bring to the table? Think about the workplace. I deserve six figures, and I only work 20 hours a week. The employer says, what's the value you bring to me? You want the cash, you want the free time, you want the blah, 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 blah. Talk to me about a value exchange in the workplace that brings value to me as an employer or to me as an employee. If there's going to be an employer-employee relationship over time, you both have to bring value. Marriage, friendship, it also is true between citizens and their government. Now, the ten northern tribes believed what? They had 40 years of Solomon, and they said Solomon took advantage of us for 40 years. We brought our labor, forced labor, and we paid very heavy taxes, and what did we get? Solomon took all the taxes and all the labor for what? His glory, not our benefit. What are we paying in taxes? What are we getting in exchange for that at that point? And now his son is threatening us with even more taxes. So why stay in an abusive relationship? It's time for a national divorce. I think it's extremely important, and I don't want to camp on this too long, but seriously, do some thinking always. What value do I bring to any relationship in my life? How can I add value to the relationships? You know, the most important value you can bring is the love of Jesus always. And that's why you pray for the power of God in your life through the Holy Spirit to love people who need to know about Jesus and need to be encouraged in their walk. Now, Rehoboam misuses authority, clearly. He was going to try and intimidate them into submission. He didn't ask, he didn't think about bringing value to them like the elders had recommended. He tried to intimidate them into submission and it backfired. Instead of submission, he got what? Open rebellion. The northern tribes swore off any loyalty to the house of David, and the nation was now torn in two, right down the middle, like we saw on the map. We'll be taking a look at that future map in the future, and this was all due to the stupidity of the son of the wisest man in the world. Clearly, wisdom is not necessarily genetic, right? IQ can be somewhat genetic. Wisdom has to be learned individually. It comes from the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Verse 18. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned them to death. And King Rehoboam made haste to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. It came about when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned that they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. None but the tribe of Judah followed the house of David. Now, when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors, to fight against the house of Judah to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, son of Solomon. But the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord. You must not go up and fight against your relatives, 
the sons of Israel, return every man to his house, for this thing has come from me. This is the most remarkable understatement. So they listened to the word of the Lord and returned and went their way according to the word of the Lord. Here's the principle. Following God's way right away can prevent unnecessary suffering and hardship. Following God's way right away can prevent unnecessary hardship and suffering. Let me tell you how to touch this guy was. Rehoboam was so far out of touch with the realities on the ground that he sends the head of forced labor, the slave gang organizer, to negotiate with the ten tribes after they said, go pound sand. This guy had apparently so abused the forced labor gangs that a mob from the ten tribes stones him to death. And that's when Rehoboam finally figures out that he's in trouble. That's when he understands that they can assassinate me like they just knocked this guy off. They're that angry. He's 40 miles north of Jerusalem. It says he made haste to flee back to Jerusalem. He is absolutely clueless about what the state of the nation is. When he finally figures out they're going to assassinate him, he, of course, he gets back to Jerusalem as fast as possible. And once he's there, he calls out the army. He's going to invade the northern tribes, which is so self-centered. He's willing to kill his fellow Israelites in a civil war in order to retain control of the entire nation. I guess he thought that if he couldn't intimidate them into serving him, he's now going to force them to serve him at the point of a sword. This is dictatorship at its best. And this is not God's plan for Israel's king. Tells you how much he valued them. Tells you how much he cared about how what value he was going to bring. He was going to force his will on them. However, God intervened and sent his word through Shemaiah the prophet, who was known as the man of God to the nation. And God says, you will not go to war with your relatives. This division of the nation came about by my will. Remember, what had God promised? He said, Solomon, if you follow me and obey my will and do not worship idols, I will have your descendants rule on the throne forever, all 12 tribes. But if you refuse to follow me, if you worship idols, if you turn away from me, I will tear the kingdom out of your hands. He told them that at the inauguration. And then he sent the prophet Ahijah at the end of Solomon's reign and said, Jeroboam, I'm giving you ten tribes because Solomon has disobeyed me. And God told Solomon that, and then Solomon, of course, tried to kill Jeroboam. So this is God fulfilling his promise. Whatever God promises will, in fact, happen. So here's what's interesting. When do Jeroboam and Judah finally listen to the Lord? After there's a division, after the break, after the catastrophe, why not listen to the Lord on the front end? Why not listen to the Lord early? And I say this to you as someone who's got a lot of scar tissue that's unnecessary because I'm above average stupid. You should be not above average stupid, right? If we listen to the Lord early, before we make major decisions, we can prevent the pain of making a disastrous decision and then only deciding to do it God's way. But I have to tell you, most of us humans, I would say all of us, seem to learn wisdom through suffering. One of the best ways you can help your children and your grandchildren, and I say this with a great deal of pain, is not interfering in God's working in their lives through the consequences of their own bad decisions. When they make bad decisions, you will pray for them, you will cry for them, you will wake up at night weeping, but if you try and save them from the consequences of their own foolishness, they will learn more foolishness. 
because we learn wisdom through suffering. I'm heartbroken to tell you that, but that's the truth. Next phase of Rehoboam's life is found in a parallel passage in 2 Chronicles 11. Rehoboam appointed Abijah, this is 2 Chronicles 11.22, the son of Makkah as head and leader among his brothers, for he intended to make him king. He acted wisely and distributed some of his sons throughout all the territories of Judah and Benjamin to all the fortified cities. And he gave them food in abundance, and he sought many wives for them. When the kingdom of Rehoboam was established and strong, he and all Israel with him forsook the law of the Lord. And it came about in King Rehoboam's fifth year, because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, that Shishak, that is not a hut in the backyard, Shishak, <laughs> sorry, Maren called me out on that, Shishak, King of Egypt came up against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen. And the people who came with him from Egypt were without number, the Lubim, Sukim, and the Ethiopians. He captured the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. Then Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and the princes of Judah who had gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak. And he said to them, quote, Thus says the Lord, You have forsaken me, so I have also forsaken you to Shishak. So the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and says, the Lord is righteous. Here's the principle. If we reject God's way, he may discipline us by giving us our way. If we reject God's way, he may discipline by letting us have our way. Now here, I didn't have time to go through the verses, but just to summarize, when it says they forsook the Lord, it means they worshiped the idols. It means that he built altars to the, on all the high places where they used to worship idols. It means he introduced pagan, religious, sexual, cultic practices of worship, Baal, etc., etc., and he did it within the first two or three years of his reign. As soon as he became strong as king, probably within the first year, it says they forsook the Lord. Now that is stuck on Stupid, right? But before they get to that part, it says he distributed his sons throughout the kingdom, some of them. Now that's wise. If you think one of your sons might be the successor, it may be a good idea to give them exposure on a small scale level, give them opportunity to practice governance, to practice being responsible, to find out if they can manage it. By the way, that's good practice for our children and grandchildren as well. Give them small tasks to see if they can manage that well, and then maybe you can promote them to larger tasks. Every employer does that on a regular basis. Well, he had lots of sons to choose from, 28. And so he gave some of them practical experience. I think that was probably very, very wise. The scripture says it was. Because incompetent or corrupt leadership always leads to troubles for a nation, a corporation, or a family. So he established himself early in the reign, and once he felt secure his character emerged, as did the character of the nation. They all forsook God. They stopped reading God's word, and they stopped obeying God's word. They didn't want to know what God said because they didn't want to do what God said. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. God describes their behavior as unfaithful. That's a word we use for adultery in a marriage. You were unfaithful, which means you didn't keep your vows now, Israel had made vows to the Lord for generations, vows that they would keep God's covenant, they would follow the Lord faithfully, and then the Lord would keep his part of the covenant and bless them. They were going to be his people, and he would be their God. They had promised God at Mount Sinai when God initiated the covenant. They had promised God in the land of Canaan under Joshua. They renewed the covenant, which means they renewed their vows to be faithful to the Lord. When they were invaded by the Philistines under Samuel, he led them in another renewal of those marriage vows to the Lord. And they, of course, had done that under King David. So this was a deliberate choice to disobey God, to reject God with full knowledge. And, of course, their self-sufficient bride bought immediate discipline from the Lord. God stirred up Shishak, the pharaoh of Egypt. He put a large coalition of allies together and invaded Judah. 
And it says they conquered many of Judah's fortified cities. By the way, this is year five of his reign. Pretty early in the game, right? And they stopped just outside the walls of Jerusalem. And all the leaders had fled inside Jerusalem because that was the walled city. David had built walls around there, so had Solomon. I wonder, you think to yourself, okay, you're Rehoboam, and you're in the city, and you're hiding behind the walls, and all the leaders are with you, and Shishak is right outside the walls, and it's your five of your reign. I wonder if he figured out that it was God who sent Shishak to invade him and impose discipline. Have you ever noticed that people who undergo discipline from the Lord sometimes know it's from the Lord? And many times just say it's just bad luck. You know, it, it, it just happened, you know. As a matter of fact, some cases they're mad at God for not preventing it, even though they're disobedient, which is remarkable, right? It's interesting. There's no mention that he initiated a prayer of repentance. He's hiding behind walls, which could be breached. There's no mention that anybody prayed. So God said, I'm going to send Shemaiah with a message to you. God says through Shemaiah, I will treat you like you treat me. You reject me, I've abandoned you to Shishak. You want your way, have it your way. All the way, right? Since you believe you can live successfully without me, I'm going to give you your way, all of it. Only after they experienced painful consequences did Rehoboam and the princes of Judah said, God is righteous, which means we're not. And God responded to their humility. Verse 7, when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah saying, they have humbled themselves so I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some measure of deliverance and my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by means of Shishak but they will become his slaves so that they may learn the difference between my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. So Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and took the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's palace. He took everything. He even took the golden shields which Solomon had made. Here's the principle. God uses corrective discipline to train us to trust and obey him. God uses corrective discipline to trust and obey him. God says, if you think serving me is hard, try serving man. Try serving humans, right? Jesus said what? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. God is a good God. God is a gracious master. God is so patient with us, right? When we trust and obey him, we live what? Under the umbrella of his protection. Obedience means you are walking with God. You are under his umbrella of protection. Judah and many people today believe one of Satan's greatest lies it says, I can disobey God and still receive all the benefits that follow obedience. When you disobey God, you move away from God, yes? You move out from the umbrella of his protection. What happens outside the umbrella of his protection? Well, you're choosing to expose yourself to the storms of life. The hurricanes, the earthquakes, the hail, the floods. You're choosing to expose yourself to the deceptions of the enemies because you no longer believe what the Lord says. And Satan is quick to tell you that you have all these blessings because you are so brilliant. You are so smart and you don't need God. You can move away from him. You can disobey him and you will still live a great life because he doesn't provide anything for you anyway. Your own brilliance provides all the benefits you get. It really didn't come from God anyway. That's a lie. So Rehoboam and people today, routinely, after having experienced God's blessings, say, these blessings are because I'm smart, and they decide to disobey God, move away from God, 
And then they are amazed that God says, have it your way. There are consequences for following God, and there are consequences for not following God. We've talked about this here many, many times. If sin had no negative consequences, what would we do? Sin more. I mean, if sin had no consequences, we would really sin with abandonment. But God disciplines us because he loves us. He's a father. Hebrews 12, 5 says, quote, My son, my daughter, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Verse 10b, he, God, disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. So discipline is training. Discipline is correction. Discipline is instruction for our benefit. And it's often painful. God wants his children to grow up to be like him. God wants us to be holy in character and conduct. He wants us to be like Jesus. So he disciplines through a process of encouragement and correction. He wants to train us in character and conduct so that obedience becomes normal. Our normal course of action is when God says, son or daughter, here's what I want you to do. We say, yes, Lord, I'm going to do it because you're my father and you're my God and I know that obeying you brings you joy, and will bring me blessing. So obedience becomes our normal course of action. As we love and obey God, guess what? We become more and more like him. God's discipline is proof that we are children of God. Another frame of reference, God uses another word picture. In Jeremiah, God says what? I am the potter, you are the clay, right? I've never seen clay talk back to the potter and say, I don't like what you're making of me. How often do people do that with the Lord? The interesting thing is, is the potter knows exactly what kind of vessel they want to make on the wheel. They're going to shape the clay any way they choose. It's the same thing. God is shaping us to be more like Jesus. God has a custom-designed plan for each of our lives. Every single one of us has a custom-designed plan plan for your life. There are no circumstances that occur by accident. Everything occurs according to God's approval or it wouldn't happen to you. And his goal is because he loves us, he wants to make us more like himself. So everything that happens in your life, and I look at you with one eye when I tell you this, all of it happens for a reason. I'm serious. All of it happens for a reason. This is not an accident. It might be an accident for me. It's not an accident for God. It's exactly on his schedule. And I don't know what the outcome is. I don't need to know. You know why? My father knows. There's nothing in your life that's occurring right now that he doesn't know. He's had a plan for eternity past. Why? To make you more like him. Because that's where joy is. There's no joy in becoming more like yourself. I mean, you look in the mirror and you go, no, I don't need any more of that, right? (laughs) We need to be more like him. That holiness is where joy is, right? So we see this lesson of Rehoboam and Judah. Scripture says, we write these examples to you, and they're recorded for our instruction. So one of the things, Lord willing, that we'll go through, because we're going to look at a lot of people's lives here, Lord willing, in the next few months, is what can we learn from them. Guess what? If we learn from the experience of others, you can save yourself a lot of pain. I'm not a big fan of pain. I just soon learn from somebody else's scar tissue as opposed to pick it up myself, right? So let's summarize, then we'll do prayer and praise. Number one, principle one, take time to think, plan, and most importantly, pray before making important decisions. Number two, Godly leaders are not celebrities. They are servants 
who work for the benefit of others. That's true for every Christian. We are all servants who work for the benefit of others because Jesus Christ, our master, was the ultimate servant. Number three, asking for advice is wise only if you ask wise people. Don't listen to the world to tell you how to live. You look at the consequences of how they live and you go, it's catastrophic. Why would I ask them how to do catastrophe? I can do catastrophe myself, right? I don't need advice on how to do that. Ask for wise people's counsel. Number four, God fulfills his promises and accomplishes his purpose even through foolish people. That's the sovereignty of God. Number five, all relationships depend on a value exchange. Each side must bring something the other side values. So ask the Lord continuously, Lord, how do you want me to bring value through you, under your power, under your guidance, under your authority to the people in my life? Number six, following God's way right away can prevent unnecessary suffering and hardship. Number seven, when we reject God's way, he may discipline us by letting us have our way. The theme song in hell, of course, is I did it my way. So you don't want to be singing that song, just saying. I did it thy way, yeah, good song. I did it my way, no, no, bad song. And then lastly, God uses corrective discipline to train us to trust and obey him. And he does that because he loves us. He's our father. Okay, thank you for your attention. There was a lot of very, hopefully, practical uh, uh, advice from the Lord here that, and commands that we can follow. Uh, I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.